You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Living to eat is more suggestive of the possibilities of pleasure for consumption than more functional notions of eating to live. Rather than maintain an anthropological distinction between eating for the good life or for survival, in this book I argue that eating with food as medicine in mind can dramatically shift the focus toward eating as part of a lifelong journey toward health. The quest for good health engages cultural knowledge, political formations, and blurred boundaries that redefine eating and medicating. Eating is not only about consuming food. It is also a social practice, often with political implications. The meanings of food and the associated politics of production and consumption are embedded in cultural frameworks that shape both everyday practices and important ritual moments. It is important to consider medicating as a cultural practice as well. I use medicating instead of healing because I'm referring to the specific act of consuming or treatment with a medicinal substance rather than the broader forms of healing practices that may range from holistic breathing exercises and physical therapy to more technology-based forms of treatment such as radiation and chemotherapy. Maintaining health begins with eating and understanding how food becomes categorized by cultural systems of knowledge. Rather than focus on defining food in moral categories of good to consume or bad to avoid, Instead, it is key to consider eating practices as part of broader health regimens. Nancy Chen is a professor of anthropology at the University of California in Santa Cruz, California. Her new book is Food, Medicine, and the Quest for Good Health. Thank you for joining me, Nancy. Thanks so much for inviting me. Nancy, tell us a little bit about your history because it's pertinent to the subject of this book, isn't it? Especially where you grew up and what you ate. <laughs> well, um, thanks for asking. Um, I grew up in Louisiana, and in, I consider it as uh, almost impossible to avoid food as well as being Chinese-American. So uh, simply by these two frameworks and foodways, that greatly impacted my thinking about food. When you grew up in New Orleans, you didn't just have... Uh, the food mom's recipes you had they let you eat anything (laughs) actually i grew up in baton rouge oh okay uh, but we did go to new orleans quite a bit and um the funny thing is yes my parents being immigrants we were they were very curious about uh every possible food there was and so they were very very lenient they never said don't eat this don't eat that they were just very good about you know letting us try everything which i think is quite amazing now, you had a lot of regional Chinese food and, and, and mom's recipes, and, and your mother had her own form of nutritional therapy, like all mothers, really. That's right. Although I, I used to think that my mom was extreme or, or unique, and then I realized that this was perhaps her way of taking care of not just me, but our entire family, that dietary therapy or nutritional therapy was a very significant component of what she thought it meant to, to care for the family. I'd like you to talk about something, and this is a note that came out of my uh, little tiny brain when reading this introduction, was uh, cooking the cure. I think that very frequently when we in English talk about taking medicine, when one takes medicine, it implies a very, even though it's an active practice, uh, it's prescribed by someone, as opposed to cooking the cure is all about, in Chinese, there's this notion you eat your medicine. And so cooking is a very significant component of producing not just medicine, but healing foods. 
one of the things that that we we you start out with, and I think this is is very interesting, is that just the difference in that verbs is between taking medicine and eating food. It really indicates a very very different uh, uh, cultural perception of each of these things now. But that wasn't always true, was it? Precisely. I think that eating versus eating medicine it may sound very unusual in English. In English, but I think in many languages around the world, there's a very different perception of how one is supposed to consume medicine. Here in English, we, as I just mentioned, we take medicine, but just how you frame, how you think about medicine, says a lot about that category. Now you go back in time, way back in time, and tell us about a couple of different. Uh, the origins of our medical practice. Uh, Hippocrates and Sun Sim Mao both talked about herbal medicine and food as medicine, and, and it was really, for them, it was it was a continuum, wasn't it? Absolutely. In many ways, uh, food was really the front line of medicine. There was no separation between food or medicine. There was really a broad continuum, and if one became ill, one's dietary practices were scrutinized very carefully. Now, uh, moving forward, we, we come to World War II and, and Margaret Mead, and, and she talked about food, something we talk about now. Uh, well, food is national security, and that was a really interesting perception shift for, for us in the United States, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think in the immediate post-World War II period, when Margaret Mead was asked to serve as advisor on national nutrition, she really was concerned about the hunger becoming lost as food became, the, the whole notion of food security came to become a national security issue. And she was the one who was really the one voice in the public basically saying, hey, don't forget, we, we do have hunger as well. We need to address this as a very significant issue. This is a, around the time when we went from an eat more to an eat less culture. And part of that was with the, the Finnish government, but <laughs> not, not necessarily the, the where you think of as the leading edge of uh, dietary practices. Actually, in that one section of the book, this is the work of Marion Nestle, who is a very mm -hmm. leading food, scholar, food study scholar, and she tracks the interventions that the American government has taken in transforming Eat More in the pre-World War II period to the post-war period, where there was this recognition that the need to eat less was very important. The Finnish government did something very interesting because they were very good at immediately enacting eat less as well as trying to transform their dietary guidelines to try to reduce cardiovascular disease. So they actually encouraged their scientists to develop this margarine that was perhaps healthier than, than the butter. One of the things you talk about, going back in time again, um, religions have always placed a big, had a, played a big part in, in our food and our medical culture by, by virtue of the pr proscriptions, what it was healthy and good, what, was, what God meant us to eat. Yeah, and that's really, that's the part that I find very fascinating. In all the major religions, as well as different spiritual practices around the world, they had very specific notions of morality tied to different types of food. So some religions might be very prescriptive about avoiding meat. Other religions might be, or spiritual practices might be prescriptive and say, well, you should consume some types of flesh, but not others, or consume only plants. So <laughs> there is a, a great deal of morality linked to consumption and spiritual practice. And I also thought it was really interesting about how much uh, culture informs what we eat and when we eat it. I, I mean, to me, the idea of of getting up and having um, like 
noodle, hot noodles for breakfast was really weird. I went to Singapore and they have, you know, they had a, a brunch or, or you know, a, a continent, what they call a continental breakfast. And it looked like dinner to me. That's right. And then it's very interesting because I think given the American diet of breakfast cereals, we presume that breakfast, lunch and dinner have very specific prescribed food items. And so the notion of savory, if they aren't eggs or, you know, say toast, then it might be considered to be very, very different. So cultural frameworks are very important in how we think about food and what are appropriate foods to consume at particular times. The other part culture plays is is who gets to eat and when. <laughs> and and we, we, all, I, I, we all sit down and, you know, eat eat as fast as possible before anybody else gets the food, but that's not always the case. That's right. And for instance, just simply in continental Europe, there are notions about, for instance, children eat first and then the adults can eat much later versus in other cultures, it might be that the elders eat first and then perhaps the children. So it really depends on the cultural context. And as an anthropologist, I try to help us understand that it's not simply what we eat, but also where and when. But there are things that, that we that at least I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat what they call the sky prawn, which is a, a locust. I and mean, you're not just not going to eat that. And, and we're also not supposed to generally eat one another, although there are, have been exceptions. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fascinating because taboos are very much more revealing about the culture than it is about what is really edible or inedible. I uh, teach a, regularly teach a course on culture through food. And so I have a uh, a whole section on taboo and avoidances. And of course, I have a separate lecture just on cannibalism, and I talk about the three types of cannibalism. So, <laughs> so yes, you know, one will have different, you know, reactions or responses to certain foods. And that squeamish quality is really, I think, the fact that you've incorporated very specific notions about what's edible and what's not. Well, well, get back to cannibalism. What, tell us about the three kinds of cannibalism. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, well, I didn't. Uh, well, um, what I've learned, uh, I describe it as um, there's Indo cannibalism, Exo cannibalism, and um, what I kind of the third is what I call the Hannibal Lecter kind of gourmet <laughs> cannibalism. But um, uh, h- historically. Um, when we look at certain parts of the world, uh, the Aztecs, uh, for instance, are reportedly reported to have practiced cannibalism, but it was a very specific form. It wasn't simply your neighbor or your family member, it was your enemy. It was the, the notion that in a ritual, this was very significant of you know incorporating the, the spirit of your enemy. But it was also, um, some scholars have argued that this was a way to provide protein um, in a very militaristic culture. Indo-cannibalism, certain practices have been discovered and no have been discontinued but in um, certain areas of Papua New Guinea endocannibalism was really pre- specifically the consumption of a relative who was deceased and was to give honor to to that relative it fall, fell along gender lines and so for instance um, Carlton Gajasak who won the Nobel Prize who discovered early uh, cases of um, I got the disease now um, but Creutzfeldt-Jakob syndrome. Uh, yes, CJ, CJS. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and what he discovered was basically that this had to do with you know specific cultural practices of uh, Indo cannibalism. One thing you point out, and I think this is really really interesting that I never thought about that, is uh, with regards to smell. Medicine in our culture has no smell. It never has a smell. 
Well, that's the thing that's amazing. It's that we, in this society, or, or in biomedicine at least, we're led to believe that medicine should have no smell or no taste. There's a lot of effort to given to trying to cover up the bitter taste. And so for, you know, in the earlier, say, 19th century, um, sugar was used as a way to literally make the medicine more palatable. But if you, you know, say in Chinese medicine, medicine is supposed to be bitter. It's supposed to be pungent. It's supposed to have fragrances that you might not appreciate or uh, it's not associated with everyday notions of what's delicious. So there is this expectation that herbal medicines or other types, forms of medicine may may not be what you would normally want to pick out as a dessert, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things you talk about, too, that I found really interesting, it, and this comes back again and again, I think, throughout your work, is are the humors. That, tell us a little bit about the humors. We'll bring them back throughout the ages. But yes. tell, tell us where they start and, and what they are. Well, the humors are specific properties given to either human bodies or plants or animals. These are features that are associated, could be, for instance, wet, heat, dry, and I forgot the fourth one. But these are specific properties that the bodies have. And when you fall ill, you might have certain humors that are out of balance. So humoral medicine was a principle that you find both in Hippocratic medicine as well as traditional Chinese medicine. Tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Xi Liao and his idea of food therapy. And this was a long time ago. I mean, it's what interests me a lot is that uh, we're coming back to some of these ideas and going, wow, that was they were right. Xi <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Liao is the Mandarin term for dietary therapy. And it basically is associated with a number of, of medicinal practitioners. Uh, Sun Sumiao, who was the, perhaps the most famous medical practitioner, was someone who believed that if you fell ill, you needed to radically change your diet. And it's linked to the humors insofar as if one is overheated, one should consume cooling foods or vice versa. If one is too cold, then heating foods or foods with heating properties such as ginger would be prescribed. One, one food that a uh food, specific recipe that comes back again and again, cures all ills, rice porridge. Tell us about <laughs> rice porridge. You must have had a lot of rice yes, porridge as a child. Yes. And actually, at the book reading tonight, I'm going to be serving rice porridge. Um, the Part of the reason why I'm chuckling about this is because uh, uh, as a young child, uh, whenever I got a fever or got a cold, uh, my mom would immediately cease whatever food I was consuming and just say, okay, you know, this, you have to eat rice porridge. And you, you can only imagine, you know, when my friends were all able to continue to eat hamburgers or hot dogs or pizza um, <laughs> or jambalaya for that matter, I would protest and go, why is this? And she says, this is what you have to do to get better. And uh, if I got a little bit better, then she might gradually increase the consistency. So you would begin with a very thin gruel and graduate up to, you know, something closer and closer to wet rice. If I were lucky, she might let me add a little bit of soy sauce, but not until I was fully well. So the irony of rice porridge, as I might mention in my book, is the fact that later on in graduate school, when I asked a friend what she was doing research on, and she was actually conducting research on the WHO practice of oral rehydration therapy. I said, what is that? And she says, well, they basically feed infants, you know, with diarrhea rice gruel. <laughs> and so that's why I thought, oh, I guess my mom was right after all. <laughs> now, um, spices were not originally necessarily meant to spice things up, were they? No. Well, spices were a commodity. This was... Uh, 
very much part of the you know flourishing spice trade that has animated world trade very early on. But the I think that gradually, as different cultures came to become familiar or become integrated into that world system, spices did become part of various diets or cultural food ways. One spice that's particularly important is is cinnabar. So tell us a little bit, distinguish between cinnabar, cinnamon, and uh, cassia, cassia? Yeah. Well, well, this is actually in the section that where I talk about longevity. And uh, it's interesting, in um, Taoists in ancient China were obsessed with longevity. And they really believed that consuming particular elements might enhance longevity. And so cinnabar was reportedly to be one of these substances that could actually enhance long life. It's quite different than cinnamon. However, historically, there have been some, you know, overlap where, you know, some people presume that that's the same thing, but they're they're quite different things. And cassia is another substance that is sim- similar to cinnabar, where it's also associated, has properties in Chinese medicine to extend life. One tradition that comes up and I think stays around, keeps coming back, is the ascetic tradition. Tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, the ascetic, uh, if you look at uh, different spiritual practices around the world, what and this is related to the section on longevity, Mm -hmm. um, that many ascetics actually renounce, not, not so much renounce food, but sometimes drastically reduce food. And so it wasn't the consumption of a lot of food, but it was actually the the decrease. Uh, consumption of food. The eat, eat less food diet. Boy, now yeah. whoever would have thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, now, you talk about the centenarians, and I think that's really fascinating uh, about the, these pockets of people who tend to live to more than 100. Somebody claimed to live to 168 years old. That's right. And so these days, I think so far, the I think the oldest documented age is 120 or 121. Uh, Jean Calmet, a French woman who had the birth records to prove it. The person who reportedly lived to 168, there was no way to... They, they had no birth certificates back then, so it was very difficult to prove his age. However, he did, I think, have five or six generations after him, so that was one, one uh, way in which he uh, talked about his old age. But centenarians have very much been a part of scientific interest in anti-aging, where they are constantly searching for how is it possible for specific pockets of people in the world to live to very, very long uh, years. This brings us to uh, the Shangri-La diet, which is not, it's not just cuisine, it's culture, isn't it? Yes, it's culture insofar, and this is why I'm very concerned, you know, when my editor asked me, you know, could I give some recipes, I was very, very hesitant because I didn't want this to be a how-to book or a diet book. You know, I was very concerned mm-hmm. about making sure that when people think about diet, it's part of a broader cultural framework. And so the, the Shangri-La diet is... You know, very simply, you know, yogurt, apricots, um, uh, the the water, mineral waters from from that region. And it's important to realize that it wasn't just the food. It was also the activity that uh, went along with it, that people lived very simple lives, kept agricultural hours, and had a lot of physical activity in their daily life. Now, there are three... um roots uh, uh, that you talk about, ginseng, ginkgo, and uh, rhubarb. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about the the medicinal properties of of these foods. 
Well, uh, ginseng, as we know, I, I talked about ginseng just because I think that's perhaps the most well-known in mm -hmm. the Western world as supposedly enhancing one's you know health as well as long life. Rhubarb, however, is much more interesting. And this is you know something where there's it's actually based on uh, a scholar who wrote his dissertation on Mongolians and, and rhubarb. But it's it's fascinating because we these days we just think about rhubarb as a filler, right, in pie. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes you might have to put it uh, make rhubarb with either tapioca or strawberry to cut the, the bitterness. But what's interesting is that during the 19th century, when it reached uh, European households, as well as British households, there was this intense fascination with rhubarb. There was this, it was a domesticated uh, strain, quite different from what the Mongolians purportedly consumed, uh, which were much more bitter and considered to be more medicinal rather than uh, a domesticated strain. When we're talking about longevity, what you say is pretty interesting. One, one thing that you point out, a statistic that's shocking, in the 20th century, life expectancy in the United States went from 47 years to 77 years. That's right. That's a huge difference. That's right. And there have been different scholars who, you know, claim, for instance, this is part of the epidemiological transition where there has been this, you know, focus on primary health and that, or it could be a result of improved social conditions where um, access to either health care or education or a better diet. These were also contributing to the epidemiological transition. The key here is not to just focus on how much longer are people living, but are they living better? Is, is wellness a component of that older age? And certainly as one ages, uh, wellness uh, increase, increasingly becomes a concern. And so I think that attention to food as a form of medicine uh, may enable that as one ages, that one might also uh, age well. That, yeah, what, what you mentioned is that we should take a cultural approach to, to uh, anti-aging as opposed to a biomedical one. Well, I think the two go hand in hand. Um, it's not an either or. Uh, I, you know, as a medical anthropologist, I'm certainly perhaps, you know, uh, tooting my you know, cultural, holding up the culture sign a lot more frequently. But I think that the two go together. It's not simply one or the other, um, or it's hard to separate out culture from, say, biology or physical uh, or medical conditions. It's it's important, however, to note that cultural practices, cultural beliefs, cultural frameworks are very important and transform these experiences tremendously. And that brings us to comfort food, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, we're, we're really defined by our diet in, in many ways. And, and you talk about the, the Victorian uh, diet, their health and humors, and there are problems with neurasthenia. Yes. Well, comfort food for me, I think, is an interesting category because this is such a uh, genre in both, say, res chain restaurants as well as, you know, say, not necessarily fast foods, but foods that are frozen or that you can immediately bring home. It's a category that when you talk to someone and say, what is your comfort food? They immediately gush and will express, you know, great in, with great express, expressiveness um, that either what their mother made or their uh, grandparents made. They, there's a wave of nostalgia that is associated with this category. So I find it very interesting. And it brought up the central question of what is it about comfort food that it could be the most unhealthy diet, but it doesn't matter because it is something that brings brings joy and comfort. Um, one will still consume it. Now, it's interesting that you brought up uh, neurasthenia, which is, I don't talk about this in my book, but, you know, of course, the work of Arthur Kleiman, another medical anthropologist who has, uh, who did research in China, talked about uh, what he noticed was that when he did research during the 1980s, and this was right after the 
you know, the early period of the post-mal period, many people talked about being constantly exhausted. It, it was a type of almost chronic fatigue. His take was that, in fact, this was the language of the body being expressed through somatic experiences, when, in fact, uh, in a different culture, uh, neurasthenia might have been diagnosed as depression. So in either case, whether we're talking about uh, neurasthenia or depression, comfort food comes in as a, perhaps as a panacea for, you know, um, for one's um, mental, mental well-being as well. Now, you talk about politics and food, which is always um, uh, the, the, a lot more politics and food than you'd expect. And you start out, I, I love the idea, I didn't realize this, that how temperance movements help bring about breakfast cereal. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm not sure if I, I'm the first to, you know, come forth with this idea, but it, it is quite amazing. If you look at the history of breakfast cereals, that in fact, many of the cereal companies, uh, whether we're talking about C.W. Post or uh, J.W. Kellogg, that these founders were originally members of various temperance movements in the late 19th or early 20th century. And so um, these were groups that were very concerned about the consumption of meat. Uh, they talked about that uh, meat consumption led to too much aggression. That, and so they very much, very, very clearly had a firm link between food and morality. So therefore, that's why they decided to either make granola or other types of breakfast cereals to try to alleviate the, uh, the amount of aggression as well as indigestion that <laughs> was associated <laughs> with a very poor diet at that time. Moving forward, you you talk about you know we of course know the recent example of freedom fries, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, going back to again, the word salary, what gets us paid, originated from salt. That's right. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting. That's right, and we have a lot of idioms. You know, worth your salt. You know, the salt of the earth. Uh, we have many many sayings in English that reflect to, uh, back to the relationship between worthiness and the value of salt. Salt was a commodity that was traded for some periods. Uh, certain soldiers, I believe, the Roman Empire paid their soldiers with salt as well. So it was a important commodity. You also talk about, uh, give us a, some of the history of sugars. Uh, I, and there's more than, you know, I just think of sugar. I see, this is really dumb, I see a bowl of white sugar on the table or even brown sugar, and I think of CNH pure cane sugar, and that's as far as my brain goes. But there's a lot of different sugars, aren't there? Yes, and that's the most amazing thing. Uh, the sugar industry, um, there's, you know, if you look at it from a chemical standpoint, there's probably at least... 19 or 20 different sweeteners that are available. And uh, sugar, of course, has a very charged history. Sidney Mintz, who was a, an amazing scholar, uh, his, uh, historian, as well as anthropologist, I would say, really wrote about this history. Talk, it, it's called Sweetness and Power. But what's fascinating is that uh, despite that history, it still con continues on as a, you know, everyday commodity that, you know, we have on our tables. I don't know if you're going to get to stevia or not. Oh, but yeah. I want to ask <laughs> about stevia because I just bought, had to buy my wife some truvia. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, stevia is this plant that is purportedly, you know, a hundred, several hundred times sweeter than uh, cane sugar. 
And for a long time, uh, there was this active lobby against the, you know, for stevia to be produced on an industrial level. Uh, well, that's changed, of course, over the past five years. And only recently now, not only do we have stevia, um, the plant, but we have Truvia, which is the uh, derivative of um, stevia. It's a sweetener that has recently been announced by all the major soft drink companies to be a new sweetener that they're going to include. Um, so we're going to see this in a lot of our soft drinks um, in the near future. Wow, I didn't realize that. That's that's amazing. Uh, well, that replaced uh, the deadly aspartame, which sounds like a poison. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, I think there there is a you know um, a recognition that if you can show that you have either so-called organic or more na- quote unquote natural ingredients, that that will increase your market share. So it, there's a you know dollars behind that um, behind that move. It's not simply you know trying to you know remove something that might be carcinogenic, but the recognition that more customers are likely to purchase this good commodity as a result. Now, you talk about the uh, history of sodas, which I thought was really interesting. I mean, uh, the that um, I always thought, you know, soda jerks, I always thought just came perfect, but that was kind of dangerous at first, wasn't it? That's right. Well, the early history of soda fountains, uh, when it was clear that if we go further back, uh, during the 18th and 19th century, and even, of course, before, I mean, it seems like the Romans, whenever they went, they discovered Roman baths. There's always been this interest in mineral water. And during the 19th century, many members of the elite and uh, ruling class would go to spas or baths and not only go for to soak in it but also to drink the waters now during the 19th century there was this this discovery of carbonation where it was possible to as a laboratory practice to carbonate water rather than to do it artificially rather than naturally so very quickly that became translated to the pharmacy and so pharmacies were the first places where carbonated waters were sold that's where you, you, we have the soda jerks, we have the soda fountains, the fountain uh, soda drinks during the, say, mid-20th century. And it was a very dangerous activity because using phosphate, <laughs> you know, these chemicals were very difficult chemicals and it can be very dangerous. You could get burned um, uh, with those chemicals. Now, you know, I didn't know that it was one guy who invented Coke. That's really pretty wild. He was just some, <laughs> was was he a soda jerk as well, or was he uh, was he out there trying to make uh, the world's uh, most famous soft drink? No, well, John Pemberton was, uh, what happened with these different pharmacies was as they began to carbonate their, their drinks, uh, they realized that if they added ingredients like sarsaparilla or root beer or um, other herbs, that that would be a way in which they could draw customers. So it was a combination of branding, but it was also a combination of experimenting with different recipes. And we see this in the contemporary moment where you see the return to, you know, say, old-fashioned root beers that are a combination of different types of herbs and flavors. I like root beer, actually. Um, One of the things you talk about, the shift um, that we've seen between the 19th and 20th century was uh, in the 19th century, foods were, I guess, you, you describe them as moral. And in the 20th century, we now have, you know, science and individualism driving our, our eating. Yes. Well, part of that really has to do with, you know, the age of modernity and how science really came to shape everything that was modern, including our food. And so uh, we're obsessed with calories. We're obsessed with measuring, you know, food in certain ways. 
And so, absolutely, I, I think that morality, it, it's not to say that morality disappeared. We are still very, very moral about, oh, no, I shouldn't eat this. You know, I'm not being a good person. I've, eat, I've had too much sugar for today. Or, you know, there are ways in which uh, morality still plays a very significant part in the way we think about food. So it's not to say that it's been taken over by science, but that the two, these, these different ways of thinking about food shape our perceptions of food. And it's important to take a step back, as an anthropologist might, to understand that these are part of historical and cultural processes that, that have come to how we think about what we are consuming on an everyday basis. What, what Michael Pollan calls nutritionalism. That's right. And he's concerned about that. Uh, he talks about nutritionalism as a type of obsession that we've lost the forest for the trees, that we're so focused on nutritional content that we're not really thinking about the whole. And I, in my book, I talk about nutritional literacy, that when I talk about nutritional literacy, it's not just about focusing on good nutrition, bad nutrition, but thinking about nutrition from these broader cultural frameworks. Yeah, you you have to get beyond the iPhone application that lets you track your calories, I guess. Oh wow, I didn't realize that was a <laughs> that was a uh, program available. It's great, trust yeah. me. Uh-huh. Uh, um, you talk about something, and this is a great word. I've heard it before, I, but I didn't really I haven't seen it discussed in depth. Nutraceuticals. What are they? Yes. Well, nutraceuticals was a term that was coined by Stephen Felice, uh, De Felice in 1979. It is a new term, but it is used interchangeably now uh, with functional foods. It's basically any, say, um, uh, ingredient in a food that is deemed to have certain qualities. And that ingredient is isolated as a compound and then say, enhanced. So it's, for instance, you know, pomegranates is considered to be, you know, antioxidant and good for you. So now we see it's not just pomegranate juice, but, you know, we might find enhanced types of food that will have that ingredient. So lycopene is an example that was, you know, uh, so-called associated with uh, certain types of tomatoes that were designed to, you know, have more lycopene. And nutraceuticals are increasingly having more of a market share, which we see every day. And, and this is a, uh, this is not a new idea, though. I mean, it, it's from ancient civilizations, as you mentioned early in your book, where food and medicine were really inseparable, or they're part of the same a continuum, not not a separate categories. Absolutely. And so, for instance, I use the example of tea. That perhaps mm-hmm. um, you know, tea is the perfect, or perhaps the first nutraceutical. It's just that it's when we think about nutraceuticals in the contemporary moment, it has become much more industrial grade, should I say. <laughs> Uh, it's produced on a mass level in a way that it wasn't before. And, and you also mentioned um, uh, tonics and elixirs. I love the word elixir. It's yes. so great. Well, what's interesting now is uh, if you look at a lot of bars, there's been a lot of um, shift to having you know mixers, mixologists that are focusing on uh, new recipes, which in some ways is very similar to the apothecaries of the medieval period. Right? That, that is interesting. Um, what is it that just absinthe? I yes. think absinthe, you can now get absinthe in bars. That's right. Well, I was back in New Orleans uh, uh, last spring, and I remember that um, the absinthe was something that was sold not only in bars, but also uh, in cafes and shops, that there were there was this return to absinthe. Wow, now that's interesting. Um, tell us a little bit, uh, I think now it's, it's a good time for 
your brief history of patent medicines. <laughs> well, it's it's very brief, just because I, I I think that you know quite a few scholars have uh, talked about this. It's a, in some ways a history that has been written, but I thought it was important and relevant to um, mention in this book because back during the 19th century, patent medicines were all the rage, and part of this had to do with the fact that. Um, it might be that you know um, a high proportion of them had very high alcohol content, um, so it was a way to consume alcohol in addition to, um, say, you know, other herbs. I'm not um, a drunk. I'm sick. <laughs> <laughs> but but there was this belief that you know patent medicines uh, could cure anything, and mm-hmm. so um, so I, I thought that was very fascinating because this here's another example of um, it was a precursor to um, certain forms of nutraceuticals. Tell us a little bit about the DSHEA and supplements and all this big foo-for-ah. We had the ephedra scare. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, Deshay was an uh, act that um, uh, is very controversial. Uh, it is the, what is it, uh, the Dietary and Supplement Health Education Act. Um, to go back and look at my book, sorry, I don't have it in front of me. But uh, this was a ruling that came out in 1979. And this... No, not 1979, 1989, and it had a huge impact um, on the use of supplements as well as um, herbal medicines. And very simply, it used to be that the FDA said you had to prove that a drug was effective in order for a drug to be approved. What Deshay did was to show that with supplements and herbal medicines, it had to show that there was no harm, and the ruling was that these items were considered in the category of food rather than drugs. And so because it's in a separate category, it was not held to the same standard um, as, say, what you have, the hoops that you have to go through to get a drug approved. Well, this is, this is fascinating because it fits right into your spectrum from food to medicine. Here's something that we've created to fill that gap it, right, right in between. Absolutely. And um, I think uh, the other element that we need to think about is not just Deshay, but also what is now uh, referred to as the Codex Alimentarius. This is something oh, that the... the CAC. What a bad <laughs> idea for <laughs> right. a name. Right. It's a very interesting name, but I just call it the Codex. Uh-huh. Um, but this is a, a, a series of hearings that are ongoing right now that carried out by the UN um, and WHO to try to harmonize, uh, to make sure that what we call a, a food or drug in this country means the same thing as in another country. So you can only imagine in the realm of supplements, there's a lot of concern and debate. You know, there. I think in this country, when I was uh, looking up coverage of this, consumers were very concerned that it might mean that they would no longer be able to uh, purchase vitamin supplements, for instance, that these might be banned. In fact, that's not true. That's really a myth. But um, the codex is going to be a very interesting process by which um, new categories of food and medicine are going to be emerging. So the black helicopters won't be taking my vitamin C away? Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, I I like this word you use, harmonize. It's really an interesting term. Is this in use in play when are the codex people using this word? Uh, Well, this is actually, uh, we see harmonization um, going on in a a number of different industries. This is when there has to be some sort of, not necessarily balancing act, but making sure that categories or definitions are equivalent. And, And that's in the industry, the world of industry. This is that's what it re- refers to within anthropology. Laura Nader, who's a professor of anthropology at Berkeley, wrote about harmony. Uh, she's a legal anthropologist, and she talks about harmony as a legal and cultural concept that is really about control. That's really interesting. Um, of course, 
it's complicating. If the food and medicine were not complicated enough, we've brought in a brand new complication, which are GMOs, genetically modified organisms, and there's no escaping that right now. I mean, you, everywhere, everything. That's is, right. Is there That's everywhere? Right. That's right. And what I argue in this book is that uh, what's fascinating about GMOs is that we consume so many GM foods um, already. If we consume processed foods, you know, over a third of processed foods, you know, have some, you know, uh, element of GM food item in there. Uh, however, we haven't really talked about GM drugs, and that's actually um, genetically modified drugs or drugs that are uh, somehow modified. And I, my belief is that because we already consume pharmaceuticals that are chemically produced in a laboratory, we don't think anything of, say, something that might be genetically enhanced or modified. Whereas uh, GM foods, however, tend to be, there's a very grave protest and concern, um, mostly originating from Europe as well as uh, here from the U.S. And in my book, I talk about how countries like India and China are, you know, really concerned about population issues and making certain decisions about producing GM foods to make sure that there's enough. Returning again to the issue of food security. Right. Well, I, I thought it was interesting how much uh, genetically modified food was how big that was in China, I just, we just had no idea. That's right. And uh, Greenpeace, of course, has been tracking this. Um, it's actually, when we talk about GM foods, um, the um, American agricultural system is the world's largest producer of GM foods. So China is only producing a, you know, a minuscule, you know, 10% uh, relative to the U.S., but but it is increasing, and it's because it's partly facing a, um, a broader concern about population increase. And of course, the food security issue with GM crops cuts both ways because they're particularly vulnerable. If there's something that will kill a GM crop, it will kill the entire GM crop in one quick swath, and you that's have right. no survivors, and you don't even have any seeds left. Right, right. And that's actually, um, I didn't get to write about this in my book, but, uh, you know, the uh, what I call the Noah's Ark or the seed crypt in Norway, it's just fascinating because what they've decided to do is literally archive every seed of every living plant and it's buried you know under you know these um, polar you know glacial <laughs> in, in, under these glacial vaults and it would be a wonderful um, I would love to do a trip there just to visit the vault. <laughs> that sounds really fascinating. Um, it surprises me how, how much uh, uh, soy is is Grown in America, I would, that's something I never would have expected. That's right. And it's uh, not just the United States, but also increasingly across Central America and now South America. So um, part of the deforestation that's taking place of the Amazon uh, is related to the transformation of these forests to uh, land that's cultivated for soy. Now, uh, tell us about farming spelled with a PH. What is it? <laughs> Well, um, I talk about farming in um, in the chapter on GMOs, and uh, this is related to the um, earlier point I brought up about G um, uh, GE drugs or genetically modified drugs. Uh, farming is uh, one example might be, so for instance, in Australia, they have been uh, cultivating spinach crops that um, have, uh, say, antibiotics in there. So literally the notion of eat your spinach um, <laughs> will make you well is going to be uh, going to have a very different meaning um, altogether. Now, you talk about uh, uh, GE insulin and, and heparin and, and some perceived problems with them. Now, what I don't get, I mean, isn't insulin insulin? I mean, if it's insulin, it's, it's a chemical, and it's got these little atoms all lined together. How could the GM version be different from another version? 
Um, I think there's been some concern about uh, GM insofar as uh, allergenicity, mm -hmm. where it's not proven yet in human clinical trials whether or not increased allergenicity is going to, you know, be uh, a result of GE drugs. So there's there is that concern about GE insulin, although it is has been in use, it has been in production, mm -hmm. and um, but there is this concern that, that there's not enough conclusive evidence. One of the things that, that this uh, idea of, like, use antibiotics and spinach and stuff, it really, like, is f finally, as you point out, the ultimate inversion of <laughs> where we started way back with Hippocrates and Sun Tzu Mao mm -hmm, uh, of mm -hmm. food as medicine. And in this case, the, the medicine is in the food. That's right. And so much of, um, I think, what anthropologists talk about is the fact that you know, we have these categories, but uh, what's interesting are when these categories become blurred or when the boundaries between them become blurred. And so, you know, what we, when we look at nutraceuticals in which, you know, the medicine is in the food or, or, or the food is in the medicine, uh, it's precisely pointing out the fact that, well, you know, there are consequences. And so simply saying having uh, food be your medicine, um, it, it can really transform, you know, how you eat and how you ultimately medicate. And I, I think one of the things I, I, I really love about this book is um, your perceptions throughout the book really pull us back from, you know, the individual act of eating and the individual act of, of taking medicine and give us this, this uh, perception that, they, that it really is, it's an anthropological activity, something that humans do, not just something, you know, I've got to eat. It's, it's not just science, it's culture. That's right, and it's also uh, we live to eat. It's not that we eat to live, but <laughs> it is very much we're social beings. We um, are we we don't live by ourselves. We you know live in in a world, and that's the important part to realize that we our ideas about how we eat and where we eat, with whom we eat. These are all things that are very much shaped by our culture. I've been speaking with Nancy Chen. Her new book is Food, Medicine, and the Quest for Good Health. Thank you for joining me, Nancy. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.